Good morning, everyone. I count it a privilege to be here with you all this morning. Um, special appreciation to my family who came out, Mel and Ann. Good to see you here. Also, my wife's family. I thank you for supporting us here this morning. <clears throat> for a message this morning, I'd like to talk about the Lord's Prayer. I'd like to look at the Lord's Prayer and then from that, maybe get some helpful pointers or maybe some inspiration for our prayers when we reach out to God. So, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6. I appreciated a Sunday school discussion this morning, and as we talked about um, the high priest, the new high priest, the better high priest, I had to think, you know, all this stuff was prophesied. The plan of salvation was prophesied. And Jesus, when he... When he talked to the public, a lot of times the words he used, um, the things he said, were taken from Scripture. Uh, we find different phrases. He, he quoted Scripture. And this morning I'd like to point out something in the Lord's Prayer that he doesn't say he quoted Scripture, but I believe we can find some similar Scripture pretty close to it. So while you're at Matthew chapter 6, um, the Lord's Prayer is basically verse 9 through verse 13. Uh, and I'm going to turn to 1 Chronicles 29 and read some there. So you can stay in your Bibles where you're at, and I will go to 1 Chronicles 29. And note the similarities between the prayer of David. <clears throat> Wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation, and David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as heads above. I'm going to stop right there. But you can see the wording is pretty similar to what Jesus uh, used in Matthew chapter 6. Now back to Matthew 6, uh, verse 9 through 13 is uh, the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to include verses 5 through 15 with very little comment on that. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions, as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking." Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask. After this manner therefore pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. <clears throat> Here we see a prayer. Jesus gave a prayer that we can model, a prayer that we can we can use, a prayer that we can um, and we we do in our worship services at our at Sturds Mills. Um, by the way, we're from the Sturds Mills congregation, Mifflin County, Pennsylvania. If you're ever there, it's right along 522. Follow 522 the whole way there. Um, and you're welcome to stop in Sunday morning. 
uh, Wednesday evenings, a lot of times after prayer meeting, we quote, we stand and we quote the Lord's Prayer. Um, I'm not sure if I've ever heard anybody use the Lord's Prayer as a prayer when they when they prayed in a public service, but you know we quote it, we we refer to it, and we we think about it. Uh, why do we pray? Is there a need to pray? Are there conditions to be met in order to pray? What happens after we pray? Is form, is a little bit of form okay in prayer? A form and repetition, is that okay in prayer? And how do we pray? Just some things I thought of as I was, as I was meditating and studying for this. Uh, I quote from Daniel Kaufman in Doctrines of the Bible. I asked the question, why do we pray? We pray to a higher power. We pray to a God above all, a supreme God. And this is what Daniel says. The infinite being whom we call God can be dis- described only in the language of infinity. His dominions are immeasurable, his wisdom unfathomable, his greatness beyond comparison, his riches unsearchable, his ways past finding out. We have reached the limit of our knowledge when we exclaim with the psalmist, Even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. And yet it is through him only that the light of revelation is thrown upon the canvas of time and the realms of the past, present, and future are brought within the grasp of finite man. So we pray to reach this God. It's our only avenue to reach God. We can think about God through the day. We can read his holy word. But if we want to communicate with God, we need to pray. We need to pray to God. And he goes on with some interesting thoughts there. Um, I mentioned the surrounding verses, verse 5 through 15, uh, verse 5 through 8, and then, of course, the last two verses are a continuation of thought from verse 12 about forgiving each other, forgiving our debts, and our debts being forgiven. There's a word that popped out twice in me when I was looking out at this. In verse 8 and 9, both, we see the word, therefore. Now, it's been said that if you're reading the scripture and you start at a verse and it either contains the word therefore or it starts with the word therefore, it's good to take a look at, what's, at what was, at what was writ, written previously so you can find out what that word is there for. So we see here in verse 8, Be ye not therefore, be ye not therefore. Don't be like the heathen. Don't pray like the heathen. Don't pray like those who pray out of a heart of insincerity. Don't be like them. Be ye not therefore like them. And the next one is verse 9, which is kind of the different, the different twist to it. Um, after this manner, therefore, pray ye. Uh, don't pray like them, but, but after this manner, pray ye. A couple thoughts I have here, a couple points. Um, actually, i got seven of them. I guess that's a little bit more than a couple. Uh one of the first things we see in this actual prayer, which is verse 9 through 13, one of the first things I see is that God is our Father. God is our Father. And I already read from Daniel Kaufman's book a little bit, but it points out the supreme being of God. God is our Father. Um, it says, Our Father which art in heaven. I believe that's very significant. The word our. Together we claim the same God. We come before him and we ask him, we say, our father this or our father that. We claim the same God. 
He is the Father of all mankind and will be a Father to all who call on Him. You know, we serve the same God that the men did in Genesis, Genesis 4.26. The last part of the verse says, it just tells us this, Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. You know, since that time, mankind has continually called upon the name of God. And it's the same God, the same Father through thousands of years. And I'm blessed that we can call on the same God, the same Father that, that uh, Seth and Enos would have called on, or, or Abraham and Isaac. That's a blessing. Another thing it hints at is it hints of unity. Our Father, together we have one Father. We need to be unified in our Christian life. When we approach God, I believe we need to approach Him with a spirit of unity. We teach our children to pray, Dear Jesus, and then on and on we go. But as we get older and we understand the plan of salvation, as we understand what God has done for us, I think it behooves us to reach out to God as a Father, our Father, which art in heaven. In fact, it mentions the word our, us, and we six different times. Our Father, the Father of millions of people. He is our Father in heaven. He is our Father in heaven. Not an earthly Father, but a heavenly Father, a Creator. Our Father created heaven and earth, and all therein, and He dwells in heaven. He dwells in the heavens. Uh, Genesis 1, 1 tells us that in the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. And, and John 1 also uh, reaffirms that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. It, it reaffirms the fact that God has been from the beginning and long before that. Our finite minds cannot comprehend that. And not only is He a Heavenly Father to each of us, but He's a Father who hears our prayers. You would see in Psalm 65, verse 2, O thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh come. O thou that hearest prayer. You know, as Christians, our Heavenly Father is the only God. Who, all the religions, the gods they claim, do not hear prayer. Our God, our Heavenly Father, is the only one who can hear our prayers. His name is to be hallowed. His name is to be hallowed. Uh, the word hallowed has the idea to make holy ceremonially, to purify, consecrate, mentally. So we have two different meanings in this word hallowed. Hallowed be thy name. When we approach God and we call him Father, not only do we do, we do it in a ceremonial way, as in public prayers or in our private personal prayers, but we need to do it in our hearts. We need to do it mentally. We need to understand who God is. He is our Father. His name is to be hallowed. And I appreciate the fact that, that when I hear brethren praying in church. They, they, they hallow the name of God. They, they lift His name up. And I believe that's something that we should, we should uh, endeavor to do and keep in mind when we pray. Lift God's name up. Hallow it. Not only, not only when we're speaking, but in our hearts. Daniel 2, verse 20, we see a prime example of Daniel lifting up the name of God. 
Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are His. There's a lot in that verse. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, wisdom and might are His. Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments, we see God telling the Israelites to honor Him. He says, I am the Lord God. You honor me. Hallow my name. Don't take my name in vain. Don't curse and swear by my name. In order to properly pray and bless His name, we need to do so mentally in our minds and our hearts. And I had to think of the Anabaptist martyrs. I had to think of um, of Paul and Silas in prison, of Job. I think especially of the Paul and Silas in prison. They were beaten. They were bruised. They were lacerated. And yet what did they do in the middle of the night? <laughs> they sang praises. They sang praises. They lifted up the name of God. And we see the great result from that. Rather than curse God and curse the men who beat them, they lifted up His high and holy name. There's countless stories of Anabaptist martyrs uh, at the stake or as they were being drowned. They lifted up God's name. Uh, if, you, if you get any copies of the Ospen Songbook, there's a lot of old hymns that were written by some of those martyrs or written by people who heard them. They recorded the words. Even Abraham, when he was tried to offer up Isaac, God told him to go offer his son for a sacrifice. And Abraham obeyed immediately. It says he rose up early in the morning. He went three days' journey to offer up his only son, the son in whom God had promised Abraham's seed would flourish. Now, it's interesting, we don't read after that that Abraham communicated with God. I could find no reference after that occurrence of Abraham building an altar to God. But do you think anything changed? I don't think it did. He offered that ram on Mount Moriah, and then he went back home. And it goes on to tell about him, his wife dying, and eventually he passed away. But he left a legacy with his son and with his grandchildren. And they, in turn, in times of need, lifted up God's name and worshipped him. What else do we see here? Verse 10, we see submission to God's will. It says, Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. What is God's kingdom? Uh, where is God's kingdom? What is important about God's kingdom? And I believe God's kingdom is a kingdom of peace. A kingdom of, of born-again believers. And at this point in time, men didn't understand what that was all about. But you know, we do today. We understand that. We understand that this kingdom is not an earthly kingdom, a kingdom of men and forces, but it's a kingdom of peace. In fact, in Isaiah 2, it talks about this kingdom a little bit. It talks about um, teaching us. It says, And many people shall come and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. He shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares etc. Neither shall they learn war anymore. That's a, that's, a, that's a prophecy of peace. That's a prophecy of kingdom of peace. And I believe we're living in that today. We, we should be living in that today. We should be living in the kingdom of peace today. Thy kingdom come. 
You know, we reach out to God, we acknowledge Him, who He is, and we ask Him that His kingdom could flourish. Thy kingdom come. In order for it to flourish, I repeat, it needs to be alive in our hearts. Just as in our hearts we need to believe that God is our Heavenly Father, the Creator of mankind, we also need to believe that God's kingdom will flourish. We need to believe that in our hearts. Thy will be done in earth as in heaven. <clears throat> Moving on. So what is God's will? That's an interesting study, understanding God's will. What is God's will? What is the will of God? I believe one of the ultimate wills, one of the, one of the most important parts of God's will is that all men would be saved and accept His his son, Jesus. You know we, know, we see in the Old Testament time, Isaiah talks about it a lot, but the prophets were, were sent to warn, warn and judge Israel and Judah. They were rejected. Um, and finally, God sent his only son to warn us, to, to show us the way to life. I believe God's will is that all men should come to the knowledge of him and accept him as their personal savior. But on, what about on a more practical level? I had to think about, you know, sometimes it's easier to understand what God's will isn't than what it is to understand what it is. And, you know, that's not always a bad, that's not always a bad guideline. When we, when we have the option of several different things, we're trying to discern God's will. The process of elimination isn't always a bad idea. Um, okay, so I'm pretty sure that isn't, and this here isn't. And we soon narrow it down and we can pray and meditate. And God does, I believe God will uh, allow us to discern his will if we're faithful to him. What is the will of God in heaven? It's another interesting discussion. What is the will of God in heaven? One writer, I believe it was Matthew Henry, said like this, In heaven all is peaceful, all is joy. There's no sorrow, no death. There's no fighting, no bickering. There's only perfect peace and harmony. And God, and God, that is God's will. That's what God wants in heaven, and that's how it is. And that is what He wants on earth. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is being done in heaven. But we can see all around us that there's a lot of things in earth that aren't God's will. Moving on. And give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Is it wrong to pray to ask God for daily nourishment? There was one older lady once that, that said that she doesn't feel like it's right to pray to God to ask for rain or to ask for fair weather. She doesn't feel like it's right to, to ask God for that. She said, we need to learn to work with what God gives us. That's, that might be up to debate. Jesus says here, give us this day our daily bread. Now, if you eliminate the word daily, give us our bread. You can look out in the future. Okay, do, will I have enough to eat in two weeks? Will the income be sufficient to buy groceries for the month? That's not what he's talking about. He says daily bread. And you know, there's been countless stories 
of families who lost loved ones, who lost a father or a mother, and they starved. And they prayed to God, and God supplied their needs overnight. Give us this day our daily bread. I thought back in our family, and I can't think of any particular instances to share, but there are some families who have who have a story to tell and who somewhere years ago someone was starving and God met their needs on a weekly basis, a monthly basis? No, a daily basis, overnight. Give us this day our daily bread. We need to learn contentment. I need to learn contentment. I need to pray that my basic needs are met. You know, sometimes we worry about the future. We think about the future. I suppose if you look at the news, you can. there's a lot of things to worry a person at the time. But God wants us to ask Him to supply our needs today. He'll take care of the rest. And I, I trust that each of us can find a blessing in that. Along with that, I believe it's also important to thank God when He meets our daily needs. Not only do we ask Him to supply our daily needs, but I believe it's important that we thank Him for supplying our daily needs. Mifflin County was pretty dry a month ago. And um, one, one Wednesday evening at prayer meeting, one of the, the men who was in charge, I believe it was at prayer meeting, anyway, he prayed a public prayer, and he thanked the Lord for sending rain. And then he went on to say that he really appreciated that. He's a farmer. And I was blessed by that because, you know, it's so easy sometimes to pray to God, ask Him to supply what we think is a pretty big need, and then when He sends an answer or He sends what we want, we forget about Him. I believe it's important not only to ask Him to supply our basic needs, but to thank Him when He meets our daily basic needs. Along with that, Christ left the perfect example of giving thanks before a meal. And that's something our family tries to do give thanks before we eat. I believe it's a good thing as families to pass on to our children. Um, ask a blessing on the meal. Thank God for supplying our needs. What about verse 12? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Some writers might take this to a monetary level only. Um, you know, if, if somebody forgives you a monetary debt, make sure you pass it on. But I believe it's much deeper than that. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We see in the account of Luke 16, the unjust steward, and again, this is monetary, um, the unjust steward had handled his master's money wrong. He had, he had uh, wasted it. And it doesn't tell us how he did it. But it goes on to say that he required it of him. And I don't know what the penalty was. Maybe prison time, maybe death. But he required it of him. And this man decided, you know what, I'm going to try to get on the good side. So he went to all the people that owed his master money, and he cut their bills in half. In turn, the master uh, forgave his debt. <clears throat> now, Jesus forgave our debts. I, I trust that he has. I trust that we have, all of us as born-again Christians, have experienced true forgiveness. But we cannot forgive each other's sins. Only God can forgive sin. If someone offends us, we can forgive them in our heart, whether or not they come and ask us. But we cannot forgive sin. 
like as this steward did. And I believe it goes further than just sin. I believe that we can, we can uh, apply this to daily living. You know, sometimes we mess up. Uh, maybe sometimes we fall on hard times. Someone helps us out, forgives us something. Maybe I talked about money a little bit. Maybe someone wants to, to give us some money. There's nothing to matter with passing it on. <clears throat> if we can grasp the depth of mercy allotted to us, if I can grasp the depth of mercy that God gave me, forgiving my sins, it should make me quick to forgive someone else when they get on the wrong side. But you know, it doesn't work that way, does it? We all have a, a carnal nature that flares up. And it, it comes in hard sometimes. We really have to, I, re, I really have to work with that. I had to think again of the Anabaptists. You read the Martyr's Mirror, it's full from cover to cover of accounts of people who forgave those who harmed them or killed them. Uh, Dirk Willems, for example, on the ice. We know that story. He, his captor, the man who was chasing him, fell through, and he went back and rescued him. He paid the ultimate price. He could have escaped, but he went back and rescued him. I think of Michael Sattler. He was one of the, in the first century of Anabaptist persecution, he was one of the early ones to be, to be killed. And he had a voice for God. He loved to tell people what Jesus did for him. And of course, he, he professed Anabaptism, rebaptizing. They took him to the stake, and they cut his tongue out and bound his hands and feet tightly to the stake before they lit it on fire. Prior to that, and it was very cruel, very cruel. He could have been bitter. But prior to that, he had conveyed a message to his followers that if he was still faithful, he was going to lift two fingers. Being he, that he knew they were going to take his tongue. He was to lift two fingers to God to acknowledge that that he was that he was faithful to God and that he had forgiven those who had harmed him. The story goes that the fire roared, his flesh seared, he appeared to be dead. Suddenly, suddenly the cords burnt loose, two fingers. That's very touching, you know. And I think in my own life, am I able to do that? Am I able to forgive those who harm me? If someone would attempt to take my life in a wrong way, would I be able to do that? I believe it's only by understanding the mercy that God has given to us that we can do that. What else do we see here? Um, verse 13, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We see Jesus in this prayer, all these things we talked about. He said, pray also to not be led into temptation and in return evil. He said, pray that God would keep us from temptation. And we know what it's like to be tempted. We really do. At least I do. Do I pray to be delivered from temptation? That was something that stood out to me as I was preparing for this. Do I really pray to be delivered from evil and temptation? I can do better at that. We see the account of Abraham again. He was tempted by God. The scriptures clearly tell us that God tempted Abraham. We see Job also was tempted, and God allowed that to happen. 
And we don't know what goes on behind the scenes. But I believe if we have faith in God and we believe God, and we believe He hears our prayers, and we pray to Him to deliver us from temptation, I believe He will do that. I really believe He will. Again, Daniel Kaufman. Talking, talking a little bit about prayer. This is what he says. It lifts prayer. It lifts the petitioner into the realms of the heavenlies. Whoever prays talks with the Lord. Whoever talks with the Lord is admitted into the goodness and grace of God. And the more time he thus spends with him, the more he becomes like him. He goes on to ask the question, did you ever see someone who communicated with God who wasn't a godly person? No. Have you ever seen someone who didn't communicate with God and pretend to be a godly person? Yes. But that, that power of prayer, that, that front we put on, is only skin deep. In order to be connected with God, we need to pray to Him. He says, it, pray, it pays to spend much time with God in prayer, not only because God has promised to answer prayer, but also for, but also for what such prayer life does for the soul. It protects us against the power of the tempter. The tempter has hard work making inroads into the lives of those who habitually wrestle with God in prayer. I repeat that. The tempter has hard work making inroads into the lives of those who habitually wrestle with God in prayer. If we would live the victorious life daily, let us make sure of our daily prayer life. And he has a quote. Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. That's kind of a neat quote. Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. What else do we see here? Uh, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That kind of reaffirms what he asked in the opening of the prayer, doesn't it? He said... uh, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And here he's closing the prayer with, For thine is a kingdom. You know, if we can do that in our hearts, I believe that we can that we believe that God's kingdom is a kingdom of peace. As creator of all things, all honor, glory, and power are his. But the call here is to acknowledge it, believe it in our hearts. So regardless of whether we believe it or whether we don't, the, the fact is there. All glory and power and honor are God's. Um, This kingdom is God's. The power and the glory are His eternally. And we see lastly the word Amen, or all men, depending how you say it. This word is an interesting word study. Um, It has the idea of sure, firm, uh, so be it, or let it be so, truth. So we pray this prayer, we believe it in our hearts, we ask God to supply our daily needs, we ask Him to forgive us our forgive our debts, and then we close it by saying, Oh man, we believe this. This is truth. That's blessed, isn't it? In conclusion, and again I quote from Doctrines of the Bible, prayer is said to be the power that moves the hand that rules the world. Whoever comes before God in sincere, believing, Persevering prayer has hold the arm of him with whom all things are possible. Thank you for your attention, and this time we'll turn the time to the moderator.